I'm going to read to you from um, Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to read the final verses of that chapter, which is essentially just Paul telling the Christians that he was writing to a record of what it is that he prays for when he prays for them. And uh, of course, he felt, as an apostle who um, had planted this church, poured so much of his life and energy into this, the establishment of this church over a couple of years that he spent in Ephesus. He carried them in his heart in a very, very deep way. And so he was motivated to write to them as he does here. Um, but he also prayed for them, and he prayed passionately for them, as you'll see, and poured out his heart for God on their behalf. And I trust that in opening up this prayer this evening, we're going to understand more the heart of the apostle, but more importantly, the heart of God and what he has on, in store for us and what he wants to offer to us. So let me read to you Ephesians 3, verse 14 to the end there. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What is it that makes a prayer interesting? Why study a prayer? Why unpack it word for word, line for line, in order to better understand it? I think if you were... Um, a lot of prayer that you may have encountered or may even participated in yourself um, is not that interesting because prayer very often can be a performance that you engage in and uh, may be disconnected from the real desires of the heart. But an honest prayer, an honest prayer, a genuine prayer, an authentic prayer is one that really bears the soul in a way that um, like nothing else really can. And this is true if we had the opportunity to find you um, on your own in prayer, and uh, assuming that you know how to be honest with God, which I don't think everyone does, but assuming you do, then we would discover in listening in on your prayer life, what are the most important things that are on your heart, what you most care about. John Stott, who was a preacher in the last century, um, wrote a commentary on this book, and he wrote this. He said, one of the best ways to discover a Christian's anxieties and ambitions is to study the content of his prayers and the intensity with which he prays them. We all pray about what concerns us and are evidently not concerned about matters we do not include in our prayers. So if you really want to understand yourself, you look at your own heart. There your fears are revealed, there your desires are made transparent, and when you pray, you give voice to those things. And that's true also when we have an ear to listen into the, the prayers that are recorded for us in Scripture, in places like the Psalms, but also here in moments, you see occasionally in Paul's letters when 
he is articulating what it is that he prays for. You have the opportunity to listen in to the heart of a more mature um, saint, someone who had extraordinary um, intimacy with Christ and whose heart was therefore formed by Jesus in a very deep way. And therefore, you are, you're benefiting from an understanding, almost being discipled in a very direct way by a man like Paul. And of course, added on top of that are the layers of the reality that he's here writing Scripture. And so this isn't just something that's nice to pray. It's what we ought to pray. It gives us a window into the very things that God would desire that you and I pray when we come on our knees before the Father. What's the essence of it then? The essence of this prayer seems to me to be a calling out to God for his continued and accelerated work in the life, the deep life of the soul, for growth and maturity into Christ. To understand what I mean when I put it like that, just ask yourself, what is a Christian? A Christian, one way of defining a Christian is a Christian is someone who has the life of God inside of them. The Holy Spirit has come into your life in a new way, and he's begun to change you from the inside. But growth as a Christian, as we'll see as we unpack this, maturity in the Christian life is the increasing saturation of God breaking down every barrier of resistance, every, un, every inclination of heart that brings him displeasure, drawing you into a deeper sense of who you are in Christ, conquering you in order to remake you as his own. That's the Christian life, and that's the process that you enter into from the moment you give your life to Jesus. God inside you in increasing measure. I want to... I want to ask them, how is it that God brings about this transformation in us? What is it then that Paul's really praying for when he longs for the maturing and development and change in the lives of these Christians? A word to those of you who are not Christian here this evening. You may have been dragged along or you may be on something of a spiritual journey yourself in which you're trying to understand better what the Christian faith is about. I hope that as I explain these things, it's something in your heart, in your eye, you, you begin to see things in a slightly new way. That you'll understand better what it means to be a believer. And that will help you better assess what you think of the faith and whether you indeed want to follow Jesus yourself. But obviously what Paul is praying for here is for those who are, who are Christians. The majority of us here who would call ourselves followers of Christ. How does God accomplish his transforming work in you? What is it that Paul is praying for? Now the first thing that... I want you to understand here. Is that the kind of change that he's calling out for is a change that takes place, place in the very depths of your life, right down in the deepest parts of you. I feel, and I don't think that I'm alone in feeling this, that we live in a particularly superficial age, that so life is so constructed these days and particularly in an age in which we have so much available to us by way of entertainment and distraction, that our lives have tended towards increasing superficiality. And you can see this in the way that um, the book has been replaced by the blog for many, or articles which has been replaced by tweets and, and knee-jerk reactions, or how um, the written word is replaced by the moving image, and then eventually we arrived at the 12-second short. 
And you can see in so many aspects of our lives that we are, we are as it were, living in it with fragmented understanding of the world and even of ourselves in a way that I think is detrimental to our well-being. And it's affecting everything. It's affecting our own sense of peace within ourselves. It's affecting our ability to um, walk with wisdom in life. It affects our relationships. It affects our approach to intimacy, to friendship, and to romantic relationships also. I was watching the third series of Love is Blind on Netflix uh, just this week. And, uh, you know, I, I watch these things for research purposes as a pastor. <laughs> trying to better understand the culture in which I am immersed. And uh, so the premise of the program is that uh, these men and women are put in these pods to interact with each other only verbally. They cannot see one another. And they, they, they set the whole thing up as a great experiment in which you can discover whether you could develop intimacy and love someone who you've never clapped eyes upon. And it is a fascinating program just purely for... Uh, in, in, in showing that it is possible to fall in love someone, with someone that you've mev- never met before. And of course, these things can go well or they go wrong later on, but it's just an interesting thing to observe. Now, I'm not saying you necessarily I want to recommend it. I don't know what I feel about it. Uh, my wife likes it more than I do, all those uh, caveats. Um, but there was this interesting interaction that took place um, between this couple. It, well, no, they weren't a couple, actually. They were, kind of dis- they were kind of dating on the show. And the guy... They, they had a kind of banterous, humorous relationship. And the guy asks the woman, he says to her, listen, I'm interested in developing a deep relationship with, with the woman I marry. I want, to, I want to be able to open up my heart to her and talk about the deeper things. Is that something you are interested in? To which she then replied um, after a thoughtful pause and said, I, I don't think I'm, that's me. And... Uh, later said, I hope he doesn't judge me for that. I was slightly scratching my head. I was thinking, is, is it possible to go through life not wanting a deeper relationship? I think on reflection, no doubt she's speaking out of fear and insecurity and unwillingness, a, a fear of intimacy. But nevertheless, it seemed to me to capture in a brief cameo the kinds of ways in which we've become disconnected people Because if you ask what's the greatest casualty of the fragmented way that we're living in our modern age, it is undoubtedly the health of your own soul. You are a person of almost infinite complexity. If I take the physical gray matter in your skull as an example of this, did you know that the brain that you possess has something like 100 billion neurons in it. And that those neurons are so connected with with one another that they form uh, 10 quadrillion connections. So you have as many neurons in your head as there are stars in the Milky Way. And then you have one with 15 zeros after it, that many connections within those neurons. And that's just your physical brain. Beyond that, the Bible tells you that you have a soul. It's not something that can be seen or measured or quantified in any sense, but you know it's there. It's who you are on the, in the depths, on the inside. And this means that you are a complex being. In the Psalms, the prayer book of the soul, you see these kinds of cries that emerge from deep within a person like this in Psalm 42. 
As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And he says a little bit further down, he turns his gaze inward and he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me, hoping God? For I shall again praise him, my, my salvation and my God. All through the psalm, you're kind of getting the feeling that the psalmist is, is very aware of the complexity of his own life, of the depths of his soul's desires, so much so that he even speaks to his own soul because you are so complex, you can even have a relationship with yourself. Perhaps one of the things that makes humans unique among creatures and part of what makes us made in the image of God, I'm sure. And so I think we feel a weariness with the day and age in which we're living that our souls are suffocated and strangled because our deepest desires are so often unmet in a superficial age. And it seems to me that that is a cause of so much malady of heart. There's a proverb, a famous proverb in Proverbs chapter 4, that advises, keep your heart or guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Saying your life is not something that you can just think about on the surface level. It is something that is really controlled by what's happening in the deepest parts of you, because out of the depths, out of the soul, out of the heart, flows the springs of life. It all issues from there. And this is why, as Paul's praying for these believers, he obviously has in mind a vision of Christian maturity and of holiness and of godliness and of nearness to God. And therefore, he directs his prayer to the deepest parts of the souls of those for whom he's praying. You see this coming through in lots of language here. You see it in the way, in verse 16, how he, he says, he prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The inner man is a more literal translation. Your inner person. So he's speaking, therefore, he's praying, therefore, for who you, who, the real you on the inside, as opposed to what you perhaps present to those around you. The same is true Immediately after that, when he's asking that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In the scripture, you may well know this, but in the Bible, the heart is, is the seat of your deepest thoughts and emotions and desires. It's who you really are from the inside. So when Jesus is speaking about the heart, one of the things he says is, listen, it's not enough for a person to change their behavior in an external fashion because that doesn't... It doesn't really affect whether your heart is good. And he puts it like this. He says that it's from within, out of the heart of man, that come evil thoughts, like sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and coveting. He's not saying you necessarily do all these things. He's saying that the desires spring up from within you and your heart betrays you. So the heart, the inner man, he prays for, he prays for the heart. He's really putting his finger on the most sensitive, deepest parts of your existence. He goes on immediately after that and prays 
that you may be rooted and grounded in love. He's using two different, pulling on two different metaphors here. One is the organic metaphor of a tree being rooted. And as you know, the roots are what sustains the life of the trunk and of the leaves and branches. And grounded is a building metaphor, speaking of the foundations of your life. So again, he's not praying for a mere surface change. He's praying for what God can do in the depths of who you are. Now contrast that with, you know, in in a month or two, many of us will be putting up trees in our homes. And we'll decorate them to look beautiful and to give a kind of cozy um, sort of Scandinavian feel to our homes. And it will bring cheer and delight. But all the twinkling and all the lights and all the decorations betray the fact that the tree itself is dying. It's dying from the moment it got cut down. Similarly, you can move into a house and if you have failed to have a survey... There may be incredible problems with the place, but slapping on a paint is very often the first thing people do, and it's not enough, is it? So what Paul's praying for is, he's praying for the depths of you, that you be rooted and grounded, that the change that God wants to bring in your life will take place in the deepest parts of your very existence, and then flow out to the outer extremities, including how you behave and talk. Again, another word here is in the, last, in the, the 19th verse. Where he, said, he prays that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How do you fill a vessel? The answer is from the bottom to the top. Friends, what I'm hoping you're seeing here as Paul prays for these believers is he's praying. This, I know, I know from my own life how easy it is to play act and to be a hypocrite. I know from pastoring that many people seem to lack the substance beyond and behind the way in which they appear to be a Christian on the surface. And therefore, the deepest desires that all of us should long for, for ourselves and for the people of God, is that the work of God will take place in the depths of us. It's a change that takes place from the roots or from the foundations upwards. Now, what is this change that he's calling for? And there are a few aspects of this prayer that I want to unpack for you then. If it's a change that happens from the depths, it's experienced in at least a few ways. It's experienced as a deep strength, a deep experience of the love of God and knowledge of his love, and a deep fullness of God himself. And you see this in these verses. Look at verse 16. He prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now what Paul is praying for there is of course built upon his understanding of how us as humans are constructed. That that unfortunately, we're weak. Paul knew this about his own life. He was a man who was given to extraordinary attainment and achievement and had really ascended rapidly. He was, a, he was a, an early achiever in life before he met Jesus. And part of Christ's work in his life from there on was exposing him to suffering and to his own weakness as a way of gradually cutting away at, at Paul's own sense of himself there's a, there's a very famous 
passage in one of his letters in 2 Corinthians where he talks about this. He describes how he had a thorn in his side, and we don't know what it was. We don't know whether it was an emotional affliction or a temptation or a physical affliction or a person who was irritating him or whatever it was. A thorn, he said, in my side, and I prayed to the Lord to take it away, and I asked him three times, and he refused. And then he explains it and says that Christ spoke to him and said that my, my he said that, um, let me get this right because I hate to butcher the words of Jesus, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul reflects and says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I think we're living in a, a moment in history, perhaps like no other in this regard, that the illusions of human strength have been whittled away and, and removed to some extent, and we're now more conscious than ever of our own weaknesses, aren't we? Of course, there's a danger in that, that then we wear weakness as a means of of seeking admiration from others. It's a bizarre twist on, on these things in our modern age that we can kind of turn ourselves into victims in such a way that we gain the applause, the applause of others. And this is the wickedness and twistedness of the human heart. But nevertheless, the verdict is true, isn't it? You and I are creatures. We disappoint and fail ourselves, never mind the expectations of others and of God himself. And coming face to face with your own weakness is not altogether a bad thing as long as it, you don't remain there. As long as it brings you to a place of absolute dependence. And this is part of what I understand God's work in the depths to be about. A Christian who is merely into this in a way that's really just bullish strength and self-discipline has never really encountered God or looked in the mirror. The Bible, a true encounter with God and a true knowledge of yourself will drive you to a place of deep humility and acknowledgement of your weakness that will then cause you to depend on God in an extraordinary way. Do you depend on God? Have you experienced that? You cried out to him for the strength in the depths. Maybe you're going through moments of pain and suffering even now. Please understand, friend, that part of the reason God ordains such experiences for us is that we might cry out to him from the depths and draw on his strength and experience the intimacy of a God who wants to be powerfully at work in you. Part of the prayer then is this deep strength. Another part of it is deep love. He says, verse 17, halfway through, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul obviously had preached to them about the love of Christ. But clearly what he's talking about here is something beyond just 
a surface level intellectual grasp of these things. I believe that a person who really knows the love of God is someone whose struggles in this life have come to an end. At least your struggles with yourself. You think about how most of your problems in your day-to-day life are not the problems that are surrounding you, other people and circumstances and situations. And most of the problems that you face in day-to-day life are the ones that originate inside of you. And most of them also, therefore, have to do with the soul's hunger for the love of our Father. I think about things like our insecurities that control so much of our actions and reactions our anxieties that plague us, the fears that control what we do or what we withhold doing, refuse to do, the doubts that creep in and distort your sense of trust in others and in God, and the discontentment that drives so much human energy and action and work that's really rooted in unhappiness, Friends, all of these kinds of problems, all of them at their root of their stem, tell us that the human soul is sick because we haven't experienced the love of God in the deepest parts of us. It means that when I, as a pastor, am conversing with someone who's in a battle with sin in their life or a decision which they know that what they're holding in the balance is the choice between living for God or walking away from Him, that really at the root of that struggle is always a hunger for the love of God that hasn't yet been met in some way. That the consistent patterns of sin and the habits that we indulge are a longing for the satisfaction that really only His love can deliver, that we find ourselves drinking from muddy puddles, doing things that displease us, never mind him. And yet, if the love of God is what you and I need above all else, for a wholeness, for a healing, it seems to me that it's also, it's also true that there are many obstacles to experiencing this love. This is why I think Paul is praying that, look at verse 19, that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He's praying that they'll know something which is actually unknowable, at least in its entirety. And he's speaking there of the gulf between your present grasp and understanding and comprehension of the love of God and what God wants to do in your life. And I can think of all kinds of reasons why we struggle to, to truly receive the love of God in our hearts. Things like the reality of sin and shame corrupts our ability to hear the voice of the Father and to feel his intimacy. Our creatureliness, the fact that you and I are, by definition, finite beings seek with, that cannot quite house the infinite. The distractions and lies that, that, that filter through our minds Constantly diverting us and making, it unable, making us unable to sit in our rooms alone, face to face with God. The suffering and, and the consequent doubts 
that make us uncertain that he loves us. And hence, if it's true, if that is a true analysis that most of your struggles stem, perhaps even all of them stem from our incapacity to perceive and receive the love of God, then it seems to me that therefore what Paul is praying for here is is perhaps the most important prayer in the Bible for the maturing and the growth of the Christian. That you can only grow as you experience and receive God's love in your life. And I don't mean here purely, as I said earlier, the level of the intellect where it sits in your brain. No, I think I'm not in any way, in any way, saying that, it is un, that it's unimportant that you hear the truth as I'm seeking to speak to you even now. But nevertheless, there's a difference, isn't there, between knowing and knowing. This is why the language he uses here says, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, length, and height, and depth. In other words, to be able to kind of take, step back and somehow in, grasp something of the, the grandeur and extremities of the love of God, and the love that he has for you, and then how he prays that you might know the love of Christ. And the language of knowledge there. You know, I'm not saying that this is what was on Paul's mind here, but it's the same word that sees all through um, Scripture that the language of knowing speaks of sexual knowledge. The two things seem to, to go hand in hand because if you're speaking in the terms of a context of a relationship, it's the deepest kind of knowledge, the deepest kind of intimacy. Back when I was a child, I recall the the news items and segments around the phenomenon of the, the many orphans that were in Romania and the Romanian orphanages and many people in Britain sent packages to the children there, kind of love, um, love packages at Christmas and so on. There was an article I read a few years ago about the children who were raised in these institutions where they experienced very little... Um, intimate contact because they had they're just so many children in these cots and the study showed that these orphans were affected by this in a way that perhaps you would never expect that on account of the fact that they did not know the intimate love and the constant presence of a mother or father or both in their life these children that their development was shown to be stunted and in particular their mental development and their intelligence was affected by the lack of love. Like, who knew that you are so constructed that love is like a nutrient to your very existence and your growth as a person? And it seems to me that it is a tragedy if a Christian or a self-professed Christian lives in such a way that even though they consider themselves to be part of the family of God, nevertheless, their experience is like an orphan. And perhaps that explains so many of the problems that you face. And Paul's prayer and our prayer must be to God. Overwhelm us with your love. And he prays for a deep, deep fullness. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, a Christian friend is by definition somebody who has the life of God inside them. 
Part of the way that, that the Bible speaks about what it means to be a Christian is that Christ has, comes and takes residence in your heart. He lives in you. He fills you with his Holy Spirit. But clearly, since Paul is writing to Christians here, clearly, having Christ inside you does not mean that he cannot continually invade you with more and more of his presence and his power, that there is more available to the believer. John Stott was, as I said to you, writing on this passage about the 17th verse where Paul asked that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The word dwell there means take residence, like you've moved into the home. And of course, since Paul's writing here to Christians who already understand that Christ is inside of them, nevertheless, he's asking for something extra here, isn't he? This is how John Stott put it. Thus, Paul prays to the Father that Christ, by his Spirit, will be allowed to settle down in their hearts and from his throne there both control and strengthen them. I think it's possible that Christ can move into your life, but then functionally, it's more like you have a lodger. And what Paul's praying for when he's praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts is that Christ may so fill you with his presence that it's as though he sits in the, 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 the most important seat in the home from which place he controls and governs every dimension of your life and existence. And similarly, Charles Hodge on this last verse, on this verse 19 that we just read, that you'd be filled with all the fullness of God, he writes this, that the perfection of man consists in his being full of God, God dwelling in him so absolutely to control all his cognitions or thoughts, feelings, and outward actions. What I'm trying to describe to you here, friends, is that as much as in becoming a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, in becoming a believer, God's life has come into you and he's begun to affect a change in you. Yet, here's the point. God, by his spirit, wants to do so much more. He wants to invade you, to bring strength to your inner person, to let love be known in the depths of you, to heal you from the inside out, and to fill you, as Paul puts it here, with all the fullness of God. So that as you grow in your Christian faith, there is more of him and less of you. Is that your experience, friend? Now let me just show you a final thing before I draw this to a close. Behind and beneath everything that Paul is saying here, this change that happens from the depths that's about strength and love and the fullness of God, behind and underneath it is the belief that this is a change that can only come by the work of God's Holy Spirit in you. And I think that was a knowledge which must have been deeply humbling to a man like Paul. He was willing, you see, to exert himself in, in never... In, in untiring labor on behalf of the Christians that he preached to, taught, wrote to, traveled to go spend time with, led, cared for, shepherded. He did all those things that they might benefit from his presence, from his instruction, from his teaching. But at the same time, he knows that he can 
teach and he can travel and he can minister and he can do all these things. But what he cannot do is he cannot accomplish in the soul of a person what only God can do by his presence and by his Holy Spirit. That ultimately, the Christian faith, in other words, is a supernatural faith. It's the very real presence of the living God inside of you. And this means, of course, that it's not just that moral change is what's required in your life. It's good if you want to obey Jesus. I commend that. But it is not enough. Because change cannot happen just at the surface level of your life. Real change takes place from the depths. Similarly, it's not enough that you apply yourself and your mind to learning more about the things of God. And again, I commend that you do that. It's profoundly important that as a Christian, you don't remain the spiritual equivalent of a baby or toddler in your Christian faith in terms of your learning and understanding of the things that you have confessed. However, no amount of learning, of studying, of wrestling with the scriptures can substitute the authentic work of God in your life. It's what Jesus said in John chapter 5 when he's speaking to the Jews, and you can feel the exasperation in his voice because these are his contemporaries. They were immersed in the scriptures, and he says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What he's saying there is that as much as we're called, because God's words are life, as much as we're called to encounter God in and through the scriptures, you must never lose sight of the fact that it is ultimately about an encounter with God himself that the scriptures are calling you to. And it's possible to accumulate all kinds of knowledge and understanding and learning and yet to remain as dry as a dead stick. Ultimately, it has to be God, friend. And this is why you find Paul here in this passage on his knees in prayer. Why? His writings were not enough. His preaching was not enough. His ministry was not enough. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Prayer is the expression of absolute dependence. Honest prayer. And there seems to me to be a correlation in Scripture and through history between those who give themselves to authentic, honest, genuine prayer, seeking God, and the maturing as God invades the life of the Christian in increasing measure as Paul is praying for here. And I think this is the kind of desperation and urgency that he would want to awake in our hearts as well. What I'm seeking to stir you up in. I think this is why Paul mentions his posture. Why he says, I, I get on my knees for this because he wants to say to them, Nothing is more important to me than this. God does his work in you. 
There's only a few places in Scripture where saints are described as kneeling. It always seems to indicate a special desperation and urgency. One of those places is the Lord Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, contemplating his death upon the cross the next day. Paul says, this is why I kneel before God. That you may be filled with him. That he may do his deep work in you. And the prayer is then about the presence of God in you. God is everywhere. We know this. We know this. But yet wherever you see God at work in the life of a person or of communities all through Scripture, it's the concentrated, manifest focusing of his presence in a special way in the life of a community or in the life of an individual. That is really the summary of this prayer. That Christ may dwell, that he pour his spirit into your inner being, that you be filled with the fullness of God. It's more of you, more of you, Lord, more of you in me. I know some of you are not Christians. I want to leave you with a thought here this evening. That you may have thought of the Christian faith as a belief system, and it is that, or as a way of living, and certainly it implies that. But ultimately, what I'm hoping you can see is that the Christian faith is fundamentally about the supernatural work of God taking place in your life. God invading you. And that that is a profoundly good thing. You know how he opened this prayer? He said, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. It can also be translated, the Father from whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named. In other words, God is the archetypal Father And every form of fatherhood that exists in creation is merely a sign or a pointer back to our ultimate father. And the reason why that matters for you, friend, is because within all of us, there is a hunger, a desire that I can think can be described as father hunger. It's the unsatisfied longings for safety, for intimacy, for wholeness, all of which are signs within your own soul pointing back to the desperate need within you to know the God who made you and for him to invade your life. And I want to encourage you, friend. God wants to do it. A word then for those of you who are Christians before I close and we're going to partake in these baptisms. Please don't imagine that because you made a profession to follow Jesus at some point in your life that you now have it all. God wants to do more in you. Paul writes, as he's closing this section, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. I think our prayers fall short because we can barely even conceive of the work that God wants to do in our own lives. And so if there's one thing that you should take away as a provocation from looking at a prayer like this, 
It's the provocation to ask God for more, to crave, crave and covet his presence in your life in a way that perhaps you've never experienced before. And he closes and says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What is a Christian and what is a church that gives glory to the God who has rescued us? It's a Christian, it's a church that is infused and empowered and filled with the presence of the living God. It's not for us any kind of dead religion or dead Christianity. Who wants that? Who wants to live in the shallows? Who wants to live in the place of compromise? Who wants to live in play acting? Who wants to engage in rituals and routines that are devoid of life? And therefore, we must find ourselves, as Paul did, on our knees before the love of a great father and asking him, God, do more. Do more in us. Bring us to life. In your name.